Chris Biddle and thank you for joining me for episode 87 of Inside AgriTurf and, and might I wish you a very happy new year as we transition from the turbulence of 2022 into the uncertainties of 2023 and who knows what lies ahead but do fear that there is a danger that negativity driven by the news agenda will shape many people's view of the months ahead. And we know times are tough. Many families are struggling to get by. Covid, followed by the Ukraine war, is impacting on our economy. But no amount of wholesale moaning and groaning will fix any of our problems. Optimism must trump pessimism. And that famous song by Johnny Mercer sums it all up for me. Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. The ingenuity creative thinking and positivity have long coursed through the veins of those working in the agricultural and turf care market. And with that in mind, the 2023 season of Inside AgriTurf kicks off shortly with a fascinating episode. I'm Sinjin Craner. I host the Rural Cell Show down here in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking to Chris and the AgriTurf podcast I'll be showing some of you guys and girls how to use um, the sales superpower that is psychology to influence, close and convert more raw sales and farming customers. I'll also teach you uh, why it's important to be focusing on why farmers buy rather than focusing on self-serving selling. So if you want to learn around psychology and you want to learn around raw sales, then um, tune in and I'm enjoying looking forward to my conversation with Chris. Beforehand, however... Here are some extracts from recent episodes that illustrates the can-do attitude that pervades our industry, featuring Jeff Webb, Harry Hankammer, John Ryan, Chris Boiling, Ian Beecher-Jones, Peter Driver, Peter Arend, David Withers, and first, from an episode called Living the Dream, the extraordinary story of Ben Matthews. Now, after spending much of his early life in Canada, Ben, then in his 40s, arrived in the UK and secured a job working with children in the health and social care sector. But he wanted a new challenge. And here takes up the story. I was at this point where I knew it was time to make the, the, the switch and start working in a new job. I love sports. I've always been a big fan of sports, golf being one of them. You know, the opportunity to work outdoors, that was really appealing to me because I've been in a mostly office-based type of job and something with my hands, something a bit more tactile than just, you know, typing. And I was driving uh, through Cooper and I was driving past the SRUC Elmwood campus. And I'm not kidding you, there was a big banner on the fence that said, have you ever thought about a career in greenkeeping? And I <laughs> did at that moment and I just ran with it, got in touch with the faculty, you know, interviewed them like crazy it's supposed to be the other way around but you know went and did all my research and it just sounded perfect so um i just got stuck into that and uh, as i said earlier on everything's just kind of fallen into place did, did you have any sort of preconceived ideas ben about what a career in greenkeeping would mean i mean uh, many people just sort of it adds up to pushing a mower around but of course it's a lot more than that yeah, literally. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Caddyshack, Chris, um, it's a bit of a throwback, but Carl Spackler from that movie was kind of my idea of what greenkeepers are sort of about, you know, just uh, some guys pushing tools around and whatnot. But as you said, it, it, it's so different than that. It, it's a lot more involved. You know, it, it's more than just cutting grass. It's it's turf management, isn't it, is what it is. Um, and I'm loving it every single day. I mean, uh, just today I was 
getting trained up on tractors and I'm, I'm calling the wife as soon as I'm off work. I, I drove a tractor today. I can't believe I've driven a tractor, you know, so I, amazing. Well, you, you obviously or probably went in there as a mature student compared with some of the other students, were you? And and, and how did you fit in? Yeah, it, it was exactly that. I was definitely a mature student um, going in. I, I don't think I was the oldest, um, no. but definitely towards the top end of things there. And I think the youngest in our program was 19 last year. But just I think with my experience with working with young folk, you know, I, I just find it really easy to get along with them and, and, you know, sort of make those relationships. And I find young people have a ton to teach us. You know, we can teach them a lot, but they can teach us a lot about stuff as well, you know. And um, it was a really good mix. We had a really great mix in the class. So, you know, these young folk bring in their sort of new ideas and then us older folk, you know, stuck in our ways or whatever. So it was a good it was a good dynamic in the group. Did you have any idea on how all of those had then ended up? I do recall uh, interviewing students on a greenkeeping course at a college some many years ago, um, and I wanted to know why they they chose it. And it and it kind of ranged from, um, well, I've always wanted to be in golf, but I'm not good enough to be a, a pro golfer, but it it gets me closer to the game. Uh, to well, my mum told me to do it. So was was there any sort of pattern that you found out? It was, yeah, it was a bit of a, a mixed bag, all, all those things you sort of just mentioned. And, and we did have a bit of interaction with sort of the, the NC Greenkeeping course as well. And it it really was, it was everything from, I was co- coming towards the end of school and I just had to pick a vocation. So I'm, I'm, I've chosen Greenkeeping and then a number of young lads that, you know, kind of realized that going professional probably isn't going to happen for them. So this is a great way to get free golf um, and, and and stay close to the game, like you said. And I think for for us older guys, it was majority of, of the guys in the group. It was career change. As I was coming towards the end of the HNC program, it was time to start looking for work. And I, you know, Ian Butcher was the course tutor. Ian Butcher, one of the lecturers from SRUC, you know, sat down. He's where do you want to be? Where do you want to be working? Look at where I am in the world. It'd be ridiculous of me not to try to work at St. Andrews, especially during an open hosting year, especially during the 150th. So the focus became primarily on um, St. Andrews. Um, I didn't apply anywhere else. I put all my effort into applying to St. Andrews and interviewing for a seasonal job. And I really lucked out. You know, I think the things like the RNA scholarship and, and the John Deere award definitely helped, but it's a bit of a funny time, Chris, which you're probably aware of in the greenkeeping field with sort of hiring and stuff, you know, they're still sort of reeling from the pandemic and all that. And people rethinking about what they want to do as jobs, not as easy to get international sort of seasonal greenkeepers in. So everything again, just fell into place, you know? So I had, you know, my, my CV and I had my little bit of experience and my awards um, and they were just desperate for, for some greenkeepers. And um, I went and interviewed and they liked what they heard. Um, And then I suddenly the next thing I know I'm I'm working as a seasonal greenkeeper, not just at St. Andrews, but I'm on the old course, you know, I'm I'm working Uh, where Tom Morris did his thing, you know, (laughs) It blows your mind, absolutely blows your mind. And and within a couple of months of starting, I'm 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 doing work on on the open, you know. So it's just been a whirlwind, absolute whirlwind. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Um, absolutely loving St. Andrews Links. I really like them as an organization. The team I'm with on the old course are phenomenal. All the guys have been very supportive. Nobody gives you a hard time about being new or being in your 40s and not knowing what you're doing as a greenkeeper. You know, everybody's been incredible. 
Um, and then just fortunately in the last couple of weeks, I found out that I've got a permanent position there as well. Oh, so, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. So yeah, really excited just to be working on the old course and, and, you know, we're, we're going to start getting ready, really getting ready. You know, the, the final stuff for the Dunhill yes. uh, cup next week, which is coming up um, and exciting times, you know, next year, next year we have the Walker cup and the year after that, we've got the women's British Open. Can't you just hear the pride and perhaps the incredulity in Ben's voice about his journey from from seeing a poster outside a Scottish land-based college to working at the home of golf? Now, still in the turf care sector, the honest and thought-provoking words of Jeff Webb, the long-serving CEO of the GMA, the Grounds Management Association. Now, we talked first about the impact COVID had on the association's flagship event, Saltex, and then moved on to Jeff's own health and mental well-being challenges. All the exhibition industry was called together to look at the potential impact of coronavirus and the pandemic. And they had a preeminent scientist who was looking at the trends and they had an economist who was looking at the trends. And the scientist said, this could go on longer than you think. And the economist mm-hmm. said, this will be over by July. And if it is, we'll all be um, experiencing a quick peak, but then back to business again. And of course, as we know, it went on for over two years. So what did your uh, opinion of economists? Well, yes, as you, as you know, they seem to be split, don't they? Depending on which economist you want to go to. Absolutely. Uh, and, for, and for you, you will have had a, a successful show in 2019 and will have been well advanced in your plans for the 2020 Sortex show. And I guess that meant sort of returning a lot of the money that already been paid and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we put in what we called internally a pandemic recovery plan. I think like everybody else, we, we looked at the options and tried to discuss it openly with the exhibition world that we were working within and also make sure that, that we treated our customers that come to Saltex with, with respect and openness. And as you know, we offered everybody a refund as things transpired, we, we did try and look at a, uh, a rescheduled date, but obviously the pandemic was still taking a grip of everything and it just proved impossible. So we went for the decision to issue refunds. That in our case was uh, a substantial six-figure sum uh, going straight back out of the door. But we don't really class it as our, our money anyway until one show's passed and the next one begins. So... In, in terms of the way we handled it, we gave people the options and provided, I think, a, a, a good and fair offer for those that stuck with us and kept some deposits in, that sort of thing. And then we had to look at, like every other business, what do we do now? And it wasn't just, obviously, the trade show that was affecting our ability to operate as an organisation. You know, our raising debt rate is to educate and train people. And I think people forget that you know, the main reason that we run Saltex is so that we can offer the sort of expansive programs that we do, investing and advocating on behalf of the, the industry and, and helping people. So we couldn't hold face-to-face classes, which were all about training. Um, and we had to come up with a plan, which comes back to this pandemic recovery plan we put in place. Luckily, we had good reserves. We took that decision to give everybody their money back. Uh, many, many people took that, and for obvious reasons, we understood that. We then decided to 
turn all our education courses that weren't online at that point into online courses. So we now have, I think it's 15 up and running from a standing start two years ago of zero. Yeah. So it's about agi- being agile, really. I mean, you asked me about my situation. I, I talked quite openly and, and wrote a, um, an article on, on this about a year ago. I don't think we're very good at having an open conversation. So I think we need to allow conversations to happen. As recently as last week, in fact, this time last week, I took a call from a member who told me, and he reached out to me simply by email, that he was suicidal. Really? And I think sometimes there's a stigma attached to the topic. It kind of denotes illness. And if you like, there are cynics out there that see it that way. Um, because as you say, we're we're kind of head down, get on with it, shrug the shoulders and take everything that's thrown at you. I'm not sure in this modern world, everybody wants to just do that anymore. And I think you've got to be aware that that, that is something. And, and, and really, I think one of the, the things that holds people back in a conversation is no one should have to face a mental health problem alone. And I think many people feel that because of the stigma that may, may exist, but you carry that alone. You know, in my, in my case, I, ironically, I got to a point where I didn't realise I was um, in quite as bad a state as I actually was because I was literally taking on the burden of managing our association in a pandemic. And at the same time, in my case, and, and um, ha- having to sort of look after a, a dying father who was at, at the point of dying of a combination of lung and brain cancer. I remember spending a month becoming his carer because the local hospice couldn't take him because this is through the pandemic. And at the point of his death, I was taking a, a phone call about a communications issue for the for the GMA. So missed the point of the father dying, having been there for a month looking after him. Mm. And those, those things tend to take a toll on you in the end. And presumably, um, unfortunately, because of lockdown, I understand you won't be able to, you won't be able to mark his death in the way that uh, it, it has been normal in recent years because of lockdown restrictions. We we had a a, a videoed cremation, mm. purely and simple, with friends mm. and family that that couldn't come. So yeah, but I think for me it was a tipping point in terms of a bit later actually because we didn't really know until probably October in 21, whether we could even run Saltex either. I think it really was COP26 was the thing that, that lit up the exhibition industry because once we knew COP26 had gone ahead with Boris and the whole world turning up down in Cornwall, I think it was, then you knew you could put on an exhibition. But you also had that sense of responsibility for, or I, I take that burden very strongly and seriously for my own team of staff at, at the GMA. and also because you feel a responsibility for the industry to get the show on. And you're did, did you, d- during 2021, and, and you, you talk about Saltex, and obviously there was uncertainty, and Saltex is a big, major milestone in your, your year, every year, and, and obviously takes not a lot of physical work, but a lot of mental thinking. Um, w- were you aware of, of your own, sort, if you like, deteriorating mental state? I think people working close to me, who I'm friendly with, noticed the stresses and strains. I think you can get into an ever-decreasing circle without realising it. But physically, which is it's probably more physical for me than mental, to be quite honest, 
it was a week out from Saltex. I was up locally on a walk with my my wife, who's got a really good capacity for getting lost and managed to do that on, on this particular walk. But we'd gone up quite a steep hill and got to the top and I, I thought I was a bit out of breath. I, I do have asthma, so sometimes I, I get out of breath. We put it down to maybe a panic attack um, because I was worrying about the outcome of the show coming up. Forgot about it. My wife, Julie, got us lost and we walked 10 kilometres more than we should have done before we got back down. Mm-hmm. Then turned up during the week. Show went really, really well. It was a fantastic event. Following weekend was my daughter's graduation up in Newcastle. Drove back from that on the Tuesday, I think it was. And I woke up on the Wednesday morning, 6.30 in the morning. Basically, I thought I had a bit of a head cold. And then things escalated and it wasn't until I was standing in a and e ironically actually i walked into the the ambulance and they asked me what i did for a living so i told them <laughs> the paramedics had just been on a tour of wembley stadium and were praising the turf at the stadium so i, I had a kind of working trip um <laughs> into the hospital talking about the turf industry so nothing ever stopped but um no in my, in my case i was told i'd had a heart attack and, the and i understand day. you actually walked into a and a a did you i mean yeah no <laughs> it was you know, it wasn't one of these dramatic, you know, uh, bells and whistles upstairs and falling over. I had lots of um, probes on me and things like that, but walked in and never lost consciousness or anything. So I, did, no. I can't say I feel a bit of a fraud. I can't say it was a bad experience because it wasn't. No. And what people don't see is the knock on effect to people around you that like you and love you. You know, it could be you know family, friends, obviously. They feel the pressure of somebody who's probably feeling the pressure because they want you to be well so i i think that's why you've got to have an open conversation and like i say i think it's it's making sure that you that you can uh separate that work and personal life when you're working remotely especially which is what we were doing and how you then come back from that uh in my case there was a very low spot where i i i was at a point of Ironically, I stepped out potentially across a road next to a cemetery, which I call the dead centre of where I live. But then immediately I thought this is a really stupid way to end your life because it was an Ocado lorry with a big grapefruit on the side of it. And I thought (laughs) death by grapefruit is not going to get me today. (laughs) And, um, you know, you you just then look at yourself and actually have to self-question yourself. Well, if, if you're feeling this this low, why is that? What What is it that's caused you to, to get to that point? And that's why I've, I've talked very openly about it. Um, you know, I know probably it'll be the end of my career. Nobody will probably employ me because of the stigma that's <laughs> around this conversation. But, hey, I've got enough of broad shoulders over the years just to sort of carry that, that weight. And if it helps have, by having this conversation, others out there, then that's what I'm trying to do with it. Simple as that. Gosh, what a powerful and well-told story from Jeff. And it is encouraging that mental health can now be addressed much more openly with well-being issues high on the agenda of most employers. And on the subject of ingenuity and thinking on your feet, at last October I spoke with Harry Hankammer for an episode called Birth of a Brand. 
Now, back in the 1980s, Harry's engineering company was building attachments exclusively for Plymouth-based garden tractor manufacturer Westwood, and he had also built up a throttle controls business. Then a series of interrelated events resulted in Harry designing, tooling and building a brand new tractor brand, Countax, which he brought to the market in a little over six weeks from scratch. But let Harry tell you the story. Opportunity came to sell the throttle control business at about in about 88, American company called Capro. And literally, as I sold that business, Westwood got sold. To, to, to ransom. ransoms, yes. And when that happened, uh, very quickly, we discovered they weren't that bothered about accessories. And Westwood had a lot of stock uh, because the business model was simply, we produced it, they stocked it. And once it's in stock, you start to sell it because as a dealer, you know you can sell it and get it. The moment you know you can't get it, you don't bother because it's just hassle. People keep phoning you up, where's that trailer I ordered? So we, we having doubled the business and then they then decided that they wanted to reduce their stock levels. I really sort of saw the writing on the wall. Thought, well, we'll be back where we started. If it's not available, people aren't going to try and sell it. And I went to Texas. I went to Houston to finish off the deal with this throttle control business with Capro, part of the Teleflex Corporation. And Bob Gross, the CEO, uh, knew I was at a bit of a loose end. He was training my wife, who'd run the throttle control business most of the time. And I said to him, look, can I use your, can you find me a little office with a copying machine in it? Because I, I want to send some stuff to my factory. <laughs> so, so you had this sort of eureka moment, um, yeah. which was caused really by the uh, Westwood situation. Had they actually told you that at that stage mm-hmm. that they were taking away the uh, attachment business from you? Oh, yeah. They, they, well, they almost uh, took it away overnight because they Did just they? got too much stock. Um, we don't really want to order any more for the next month or the month after, which is, you know, wouldn't have killed us dead, but it would have been painful and would have would have had to have lost people and skills. And I, I read it was about seventy five percent of your business. Was that about right? Oh yeah, all of that. Okay, all of that. Yes, and uh, of course by then it wasn't the, the Westwood product hadn't been particularly developed. And there were a lot of opportunities in the product, you know, things like the blade engagement could have electric clutch and power takeoff could be separate. And the steering was always a bit clunky and not, you know, we could put, we could, we, we saw opportunities and I hadn't really discussed it with any of my development team or my staff, but I had this, yeah, it was a Euromedica moment, to be honest, Chris, I was sat on the plane going out and um, I, I suddenly thought, Actually, you know, if we did a walkthrough design, which I don't know if anybody else had done that, you used to have to sort of climb on a garden tractor uh, instead of walk onto it. Anyway, the, going back to the K-Pro story, um, sat in Bob Gross's office, I started doing sketches. And in those days, we didn't have CAD anyway. But I had good designers and I had good, good old school engineers. And I started sending sketches and making a few calls. And I said, look, I'm going to be away. We're on holiday for another 10 days or something. I'm going to be away. When I get back, can you try and get me a mock-up of this chassis with this on it and that? (laughs) We only had a very short window because that was July. And the window was the next annual show. That was our, that was our timeline. And I'd said to the guys, this is going to be a mad rush, but we need, you know, two or three different engine size models at that show. 
Um, so we better make a start because I don't want to lose the next 10 days. And I'll find you the bits from around the world to fit on them. You used to do the metal work. And we know we've got a cutter deck already, a good cutter deck uh, from the out front rider we make. It's things like steering and power takeoffs and stuff. So anyway, I got back off holiday and I was absolutely delighted to see that they've got a mock-up of a chassis on the floor built with a console on it and a steering wheel set on it. Uh, and the big issue was bonnet. You don't get a bonnet easily. In the back, back in the day when Westwood made one, it, it was a bit of a shocker. It was mm. a bit of bent steel cover with a mold, molding at the front as a grill. I decided we had to do a bit better than that. I made no secret of the fact that the, 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 the prototype would be a prototype and it wouldn't look that way when it went into production. So we did a we did a, a we, we did an interesting thing. We put a different engine on it than we really intended, just to try and attract some good engine suppliers. So we stuck a, a Kola engine on it, which I never really intended to use because it was quite expensive. But it was completely different than everything else at the show. It had a walkthrough design. It had a rear power takeoff, a power grass collector. It was three models, if I remember rightly. And we literally worked through the night to get this thing done. And so when you had sent these uh, these drawings back from the States, what was the timeline you, you gave your guys? What was it, three? I think we got months? about six weeks to deliver. Six weeks. Yeah, we have, three, we have six weeks, and it won't be perfect, but we'll, we're, it's even going to be harder after that because we've got about another six weeks before we need to be in production. And I'm, I'm basing that on the 12 weeks it would take me to get shipments of proper engines out of America and transmissions, which in those days were manual transmissions, they very quickly became hydrostatic transmissions. But the uh, engine suppliers I knew very well. I knew Fred Stratton, uh, Mike Hamilton, who was the, a, an English guy who was their VP. And they came and saw me at Peterborough, which I was looking forward to because I thought they might turn up. <laughs> and, uh, and we did a deal. And it was, it was fascinating the amount of support we got, uh, mainly probably because they were also having their orders cut back a bit. But we, we, we got the job done. And um, obviously the next big thing was winning over the dealers and then more importantly, getting the marketing and the brand going. Now, Harry's achievements were brought to the notice of a business programme on BBC Radio, which resulted in him winning the Survivor of the Year Award at a time of severe recession in the UK. And Harry recalls the recording. Yeah, it was a bit, it was bit of a shock really it was out of the blue quite nicely done peter day obviously extremely well respected articulate presenter and he'd got this um in business was the program on radio four and jeremy had decided that radio four was our target market and also this was going out just before the start of the season so you know all the people if you're on the radio they will hear you and they will be at the chelsea flower show where we will have a stand and he'd worked it all out I said, all right. I mean, I don't like that sort of thing. I'll be honest with you, you know, getting questioned live on radio about this, that and the other. Um, but it had been a good story. And we were in we were in a situation where the banks were losing money. And here we were with this incredible growth in that year. We'd gone from potentially losing our 75 percent you know, of our turnover customer to, t- to a turnover that was three times as big as the year before and forecasting it to double again. And 
I can't remember the protocol for the entry, but Jeremy got involved in it. And the next thing I know, we were hauled, we were in the finals. And I like like you say, I was very surprised. I wasn't expecting to win it. Um, but it was done live and it was done in the basement of the of the BBC at just off Regent Street. Once we got it done, I was not expecting the impact it would have. But Jeremy being Jeremy knew, you know, he was a proper, uh, very clever marketing director. And he he knew an angle when he saw one. And we ended up with just absolutely loaded with inquiries um, at Chelsea Flower Show and people coming on saying, oh, I heard you're in business. And it was a boost to the business, which was great. Harry built up the Countax brand over the following 20 years before selling to the U.S. lawn and garden supplier Arians. He was always looking for new angles, new opportunities. That included building a garden tractor with the Williams Formula One team, using his friendship with Sterling Moss to promote the brand at Chelsea Flower Show, and designing a Countax garden tractor to break the world land speed record for a lawnmower. They were indeed exhilarating times. In recent years, the internet has provided opportunities for dealers and end users to establish special groups on social media, to share ideas, experiences, and to seek and sell surplus or hard-to-find items. Now, lawn care contractor John Ryan, who's based in Bangor, Northern Ireland, set up one such group, Lawn Care Legends, a few years ago, which then spawned a complementary group, the Dealer Network, both of which have been highly successful, but have thrown up a number of issues for the administrators of the groups to deal with. Uh, John explains. Twitter, ha- or sorry, Facebook has their own algorithms that can potentially cause problems with an artificial intelligence filtering through the comments or the posts that are put up and then can either give a strike against those groups depending on what way uh, it goes. So for an example of this would be, uh, there has been, I can give you two examples actually, one where somebody had mentioned the word garden hoe and the algorithm on Facebook flagged it up as uh, a breach of their community standards in relation to a sexual kind of content uh, on, you know, which we're talking about a garden instrument, but the artificial intelligence doesn't know any different. Um, And then when you go to appeal it is that the algorithm also defends itself by saying we're upholding the decision that was made originally. So this kind of puts the jeopardy, the longevity of the group, whether the these algorithms could jeopardize those community spaces another example would be there was somebody selling a, a product for sale and um, second hand was posted in one of the groups and one of the members said oh quickly get that you know i'd snap his hand off to get that if i was you and again it was a breach of community standards for incite incentivizing violence and uh john as you well know that the, the internet the social media can be the wild west how do you keep a lid on because obviously dealers get exercised with certain things that they see are wrong either by another dealer um, a supplier a manufacturer or what and um, they feel that maybe posting their grievances if that is the case online will will help them address that so that you must 
have to keep quite a close eye on that. How how do you do it, and what sanctions do you have if uh, if a dealer steps beyond the bounds of what you regard as being acceptable comments? Well, it's the same. It's the same understanding that there's freedom of speech, but there's no freedom of consequences when you use use that freedom. So the best thing that we can try to do is encourage good, respectful dialogue uh, with the best intentions. That is very, very difficult when some people can be emotionally tipped over the edge and their frustrations can boil over. On a number of occasions, I have come, I suppose, in head to head with people when they are writing their, their views and opinions and it comes across with no tone. And then when I've had conversations with those people on the phone, I am absolutely surprised at how, how easy it is to have a conversation over the phone than it was trying to text and have this conversation uh, on these platforms. So we're not in the business of censoring people, but we do acknowledge that throughout the course of the group, um, there can arise challenges where if somebody is putting something into, into published format on a public platform, they can open themselves up to liable action by somebody who may feel that they have been offended or, or treated unfairly by those, those comments. And the unfortunate thing is a lot of people might laugh that off and say, Oh, well, you know, that's, that's a load of nonsense. But who needs a letter from a solicitor, from a manufacturer or from another dealer? Um, to come through in the post when they've already got, you know, in business, we've already got a lot of these challenges that we have to face day to day. And without the added pressure about worrying whether we're being taken to court and sued and paying legal expenses and things like that. So what we try to do is we encourage the members to try to keep respect at the forefront of what they're trying to write. That can be very difficult, like I said, and if it exceeds beyond that, well, then we have to take action either to protect the members of the group from themselves um, and what this could constitute uh, as we can limit commenting on posts. If we feel that a post is just dragging up drama with no intention to find a resolution, then of what benefit is it to either the group or the members that are there? So it's a very tricky one to navigate and we do it on a point by point basis or on an individual basis as it arises. And now for something completely different, as they say, involving two stalwarts of the Dealer Trade Association BAGMA, past and present. Uh, Chris Boiling is the editor of the association's house magazine, uh, the BAGMA Bulletin, and also a respected wine journalist, wine traveller and wine maker. Ian Beecher-Jones was the Director General of BAGMA for 12 years, from 1994 to 2006, before setting up his own agricultural consultancy. And in 2017, he and his wife Tess established JoJo's Vineyard near Henley-on-Thames. So how did this interest in wine start for you both? Uh, Chris first. I bought a vineyard in Slovenia. As one does. Um, <laughs> now, I'd been a writer all my life and sort of got to the age of 50 when I realised I hadn't put anything away for the future. So the kids had gone off to university. I thought, ah, I'll buy a property abroad. And the one I selected um, came with 550 vines, just a, a very small wine garden. 
but it sort of got me into it. This was 13 years ago. And the neighbors showed me what to do. And I thought, no, I want to do it better. So I took a, a degree course at Plumpton, four years part time, and switched from writing about business uh, topics to writing about wine. And Ian, um, as far as you're concerned, I know you obviously from your time um, heading up Bagma, which seems an age ago now, um, and you've been involved in the agricultural technology, shall I say, market. With you, why a vineyard? Uh, sometimes, Chris, we wonder ourselves why a vineyard, but um, I guess it comes down to the fact that uh, we like wine and we love wine. And uh, the, our journey started um, in uh, about six years ago. Um, seven years ago and we were looking to work out what to do yeah we we were approaching 50 and going right what are we going to do with the rest of our lives we haven't got kids and so it was a case of you can either sort of put your feet up and uh, enjoy the rest of your life on the slippery slope downhill or embark on a challenge and so we uh, we did the latter uh, we found a little bit of ground in the village that uh, that we live in in uh, in Russell's Water and um, weren't quite sure what we we're going to do with it when we bought it and uh yeah there's a few vineyards around us and one conversation led to another and uh rather than have horses on the uh, the nine acre site we planted nine thousand vines so it was quite a uh yeah quite a quite a change but uh, a very enjoyable change uh, it's it's around where you live how challenging was it to find the right site um did, did you have several options no, no, we just had the one option. It was the only <laughs> one in the village. We didn't, uh, and because land doesn't come up uh, in the village for sale very often, so we uh, we bought it and didn't quite know what we we're going to do with it. When when we did that, it was an opportunity to buy some land, and uh, we did and uh, work out what we we're going to do with it later. So, uh, around us, there's now within a sort of six mile radius, there's about ten or twelve vineyards. So it was um, our, one of our neighbouring vineyards. They looked at three hundred sites around the country, and they saw tested a hundred of those and the report that was done back in um, 2013 2014 by a number of um, uh, sort of wine experts and vineyard experts from around the world was saying that South Oxfordshire is going to be one of the the leading lights and the leading areas of uh, within the UK for growing um, sparkling wine um, and so that was that was encouraging from our point of view that uh, somebody else had done all the research and we were able to uh, to work alongside that. And so I think there's there's regions of the country that are um, are, are improving dramatically. We're uh, we're 196 meters uh, above sea level. So that is slightly un, uh, unusual. It's one of the higher sites. Um, we're on the uh, we're, we have a slope and we we're, we're split between um, chalk and clay. We've got a nice healthy breeze that comes across the uh, the vineyard, uh, which is great from a disease management point of view. Um, blowing uh, blowing anything away, and we haven't got the humidity. A challenge when we're uh, when we're spraying, but you find your windows to uh, to do it. And so we 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 were quite in a way quite lucky that um, once we soil sampled and done all those usual things, um, that we had a site that was uh, was very suitable. And the the one thing that we did learn at the time. Um, which is becoming ever more evident now that um, frost is the biggest um, challenge to UK um, viticulture sector. And uh, spring frosts, uh, late spring frosts in uh, in May, just as the vines are starting to grow as they're budding, um, 
and there's so many sites across the country that would be able to grow um, grapevines. But the the challenge is frost. They're frost um, <clears throat> susceptible, so there's there's very little um, reason to plant uh, in there, regardless of the quality of soil. Because if you get frosted, you're going to get no crop. And so that is the the unknown challenge that most newcomers into the industry aren't really aware of. We just think of climate change as being um, as temperatures rising. But with that, we get the effect of, of frost and uh, it will it will take out hundreds of, of hectares of really good growing um, viticulture land. Um, but as long as people don't plant there, they won't get caught out. Um, if they're not correctly advised and they plant and they continue to get frosts, it's a very expensive mistake. So that's that's one that is a uh, is a real challenge. It's, uh, we've got there's a couple of vineyards in Scotland now. So um, it's, yeah. uh, it's it's interesting how it is changing um, from what it was, as Chris said, um, 20 years ago to where we are now. It's um, it is uh, it is very exciting. And the, we we at the moment we contract off contract uh, our, our wine to uh another another winemaker langham's in dorset and um in 2018 no 2021 i think it was they won the international sparkling winemaker of the year and uh, verve clico won it um the year before them and uh, langham's uh, maison mum were in the same competition as langham's and so that is evidence that what we're doing here in the uk is um is starting to be recognized as not just a sort of little upstarts um in producing the occasional good bottle of wine there's there's a number of um award-winning wines around the uh, around the country now and um that's that that is credit to the the expertise that is has developed from Plumpton and from around the world that has come to the UK as a challenging country to grow wine. Um, and uh, we're, we're being rewarded with that ex, uh, expertise in, in in what they're doing. And that is, I think that's really exciting um, that uh, that we're being looked at as, 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 as to be, we need to be taken seriously. And I, I view where the UK viticulture sector is now as where New Zealand was 30 years ago um in the same sort of volume but has great potential and so i think we're going to see a huge change anywhere from the midland south with the amount of land that is going to go into um into vines and as chris said um over in essex um the crouch valley is becoming is one of the up-and-coming areas the issue of industry shows and exhibitions has been discussed ad infinitum and the pot was stirred once again with the announcement of a new show for the turf care industry in 2023, which means that four shows are scheduled for this year. Bigger's BTME show in January, the Sports and Grounds Expo in June, the new show Groundsfest in September, and Saltex organised a course by the Grounds Management Association in November. Now, Peter Driver has organised trade stands for turf care companies for many years, and I asked him what this would mean for exhibitors and visitors. Uh, well, I can't really see many uh, manufacturers or importers, Chris, uh, supporting all four. I think... Four shows will dilute the attendance at each of them, which I don't think is good. And I would certainly throw my hat in the ring for just a single show, to be honest. I mean, going to four shows, just look at the consequences. 
I mean, you've got four lots of logistical support getting your equipment up there. Um, you've got four lots of space costs, four lots of stand build, four lots of staffing, four lots of accommodation, and then the entertainment that goes with it. So, so you know, it's been hugely expensive. And in, in a year, and in a year, Peter, when budgets may well be under pressure. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, who knows what 2023 is going to bring. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see on that. Peter, I wonder if that's the case. I just wonder whether there might be an idea to pursue that um, they form an umbrella organisation. I don't know what it's called. Let's call it Turf Industry Federation, for argument's sake, to include the GMA, uh, Bigger, AEA and other turf-related associations who might be interested, um, allowing the um, various organisations to retain their independence, but to work together, not only obviously on shows, uh, but in representation to government and other official bodies, uh, publicising the industry, of course, recruitment and, and, and much more. I mean, every business worth its salt has a marketing budget. So it's basically all the other marketing activities that are competing for you know, that's the money in the same pot. I mean, you know, you've still got your off-the-page advertising. You've got paid-for editorial content. You've got social media. You've got e-shots, brochures. You've got dealer support, road shows. You've got so much competing for that same pot of money. And anything that any organisation can do to mitigate the pressure on that budget, obviously, is, is, is what they're going to look to. I really think the only way forward is the one show in some form. I believe that um, some sort of trade industry federation that you, you mentioned needs to govern it because I don't believe a commercial organisation, as I said earlier, uh, is the right people to, 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 to actually run it and take the profit from it because I think the organisations, just they just need that money without them or without the shows there will be no funding for those organisations. So I think, you know, that's the way the way it's got to be. So if I read you right, what you're probably saying is that uh, if there is one show, then it would be run by a third-party organiser, but with a definite aim to channel very um, officially the, uh, the profits and the revenues back to the uh, respective organisations. Yes, I believe that's what, it's exactly what I think should happen. Trade needs to run those trade shows in some form or other. And finally, at the end of 2022, I asked Peter Arend, the president of the dealer association BAGMA, and David Withers, president of the AEA, the Agricultural Engineers Association, representing manufacturers and suppliers, for their thoughts on what lay ahead for the industry after a year dominated by supply shortages. Uh, first, Peter. I, th I think there is, um, I think certainly we see some dealers sort of bringing forward uh, their, their stock orders, um, having more um, in the, in basically in, in the buildings and on site. I think that, you know, like last year, uh, like, da like David said, that demand was outstripping supply, really. Um, I think there is some stock there now. I think machines are now um, coming through. I, I think you know, certainly from, from my perspective, you know, we're looking positively towards 23. Um, you know, it's, things have improved. People are still looking to invest. Yeah, I think I'm hoping that next year should um, see a good year, really. 
Uh, and are the workshops and service base full and uh, at the moment? Um, I certainly are. Um, <laughs> uh, at the moment, you know, you, you know, traditionally when I started in the industry 34 years ago, um, November and December was painting the walls and, and tidying up and, and getting ready for a quiet January and then uh, sort of getting busy for, for, um, for spring, really. These days, um, you know, we're in, we are in a very different world. Um, there's a lot of preventative maintenance, contracts sold with machines. We have a lot of machines now that we do check over. Customers want maximum uptime. And the way of doing that is getting them in early, getting them checked over, um, and make sure the reliability is there for those quite often short weather windows that we have. So, um, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we had a fantastic summer this last year, probably too hot at times. But, and it's certainly a short harvest, but, um, you know, we, we know the weather's never predictable. Uh, next year could be very different. And, and, and I think certainly from customers' point of view, you know, they, they do see um, um, the huge benefits of, of having things checked over, getting it done in winter, getting it done early, so they're prepared and ready to go when, when they want to go. In, indeed and david um you know you've been involved in the industry for a long time um, it's the one imponderable isn't it the weather it's the one thing we can do absolutely nothing about but it, the weather patterns do seem to be changing and uh, um as, as we've seen you know just very recently uh, how are you viewing uh, 2023 sort of commercially um i think you're absolutely right about the weather uh you know i, I some people, it was good weather this last year, uh, depending on what you were doing. Other people, it was dreadful. Um, certainly, the grass didn't grow for a lot of uh, a lot of the year. So um, we're hoping maybe there'll be a better growing year next year. But um, I'm feeling okay about 2023. I think it's going to be all right. I think if you're in the lower end of the market in, um, you know, selling distress purchases to middle to low income consumers i think you might have a challenging time um as we, as we look at that uh, i think if you're selling stuff to more um businesses where they're looking at uh, putting capital expenditure in place and high net worth individuals who are, who are looking at toys to play with in their uh in their you know mansions then i think those guys are going to do pretty well um, so I think it is a bit of a split there as to how it's going to end up. I think the thing we as an industry have just got to keep a very close eye on is the factories have all geared up to significantly increase production levels. And, and, and some of this is not because of increased demand. Some of it is because of increased ordering. And, and I think Pete made a point there that dealers are looking at it and saying, oh, maybe I should have a bit more on the shelf than I used to have. Well, if you gear up for that level of production, you, you're really artificially gearing up too high because that is just to fill the warehouses. It's a one-off blip. Once the warehouse is full, it will, re, it will go back to normal levels of demand. And I think we as an industry, all of us, have just got to, just got to keep a, a weather eye on that, that we don't end up overproducing, overstocking. Then demand goes back to perhaps normal in inverted commas, whatever normal whatever is, is normal, whatever is normal, and uh, and suddenly everybody's awash with with inventory. Because certainly at the moment, I would guess the liquidity in our mar in our industry is the best it's ever been, because the stocks are probably at the lowest they've ever been. Yeah. So everybody's got loads of cash at the moment, but gradually that cash will turn into inventory, and we've just got to be careful that we don't allow that to happen too much. 
Well, I think you will agree that these brief extracts from recent episodes illustrate once again the diversity of our industry, the clarity of thought and the positive attitude of those involved in this most rewarding business sector. Links to the full episode's features in this small selection are in the show notes. Thank you for your support, and please press the subscribe icon on whatever podcast platform you use to ensure that future episodes are made available to you immediately on publication. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>